Lord, as we come to these ancient words, we pray for your help to understand them. And we pray that you would help us to see how deeply relevant they are to each one of us in these days. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, lockdown does lots of strange things. One of the good things it does is it it enables me to play more football with my oldest son, Jamie. He likes to go in goal, and so we go in the garden, and I take shots at him. Um, Now, mostly I'm quite kind. I shoot fairly softly. After all, he's only seven. But now and again, he wants me to do bigger shots from further away. Um, It's as if he's saying, come on, Dad, bring it on. But sometimes in those moments, I get a little bit carried away, and I shoot a bit too hard, and it ends in tears, for him, I mean. It's not that I'm a great footballer, um, it's just that he's seven, and I'm an adult, so naturally I have more power than him. It also reminds me of of another story told to me by, uh, by an old friend. He was playing roaring lions with his kids, this is when they were little, And they would take it in turns to pretend to be a roaring lion at the others, at which point the others would collapse into giggles. Only one time, my friend, who is an adult, got a bit carried away when he roared. And he really roared. At which point his three small children were absolutely terrified. Now those stories give a bit of a window into Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 3, and we've reached the first point. A prayer for God to act. Now, I'm sure you know the backstory by now. Habakkuk is an unusual prophet. Instead of spending his days bringing God's word to people, he has been bringing his complaints to God. Habakkuk complained that everything had gone to rack and ruin amongst God's people. They turned to idols. The land that they lived in was full of violence and injustice. Habakkuk complained, why God don't you bring judgment and justice on these people? But then when God said he was indeed going to bring justice, Habakkuk complained again because he didn't like God's methods. How could God use the neighboring nation of Babylon to invade to bring his judgment? Because the nation of Babylon were even more wicked. God responded to these complaints by showing Habakkuk that he cares about justice even more than the prophet did. And that ultimately no nation and no person is beyond God's judgment. We will have to wait, said God, but his day of judgment is coming when wrongs will be righted and evil will be punished and justice will be served. And so now, by chapter 3, Habakkuk is saying, okay then God, I get it. Act now. Come on. Bring your judgment and justice. That's verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, Lord. In our time, make them known. Someone described Habakkuk here as if he's saying, Okay, God, bring it on. Take your hardest shot. Roar like a lion. Let us see your powerful justice on the evil of our day. 
And so what follows is a vision of that day when God brings judgment. And it is a terrifying thought which will become reality. So here's our second point. A vision of God the judge. Now look, the language here is kind of figurative and poetic, but nonetheless it gives a flavor of God coming on a journey to be a judge. God, don't get me wrong, is praiseworthy, verse 3. He's splendid, verse 4. He's powerful, verse 4. He's good. But this is also a terrifying vision. The message is really clear. Anyone and anything that is on the wrong side of God on the day of judgment doesn't stand a chance. Verse 4. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power is hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed in his steps. Now again, it's, it's poetic language, but, but if we picture God as a sort of military commander, that's a fairly formidable military strategy, isn't it? Plague goes before him to wipe out his enemies before he even gets there, and pestilence followed behind to mop up any survivors. And those words feel close to home, don't they, in the middle of a pandemic? And God's power doesn't just extend to the judgment of wicked people his power when he comes it'll it'll shake the whole fabric of the place of creation so when he comes to judge mountains verse 6 will crumble rivers verse 8 and even seas are turned aside and even the sun and the moon verse 11 are left speechless and motionless Again, the language is metaphorical, but the point is clear, isn't it? When God comes to judge, his power is awesome. When God comes to bring justice, no nation, no individual who is on the wrong side of him will stand a chance. And so it's vital then, wouldn't you say, to understand Who is on the wrong side of God? We need to know which of us will face this terrible judgment. That This isn't a game. And I need to tell you that I think most people in our culture today have totally misunderstood this. Now, lots of people don't like to think of God as a judge at all. If we do concede that he'll bring judgment, then then most people, I think, like the idea that God's judgment will just fall on a select few, you know, the very bad few. It's only for dictators or mass murderers. But if you think that way, please think again. Think just even about this book of Habakkuk. In this this book, to whom does God's judgment come? Well, it comes ultimately on Babylon, yes. They were notoriously evil. They were the mass murderers and dictators of the day. But God's judgment also comes on his own people, Israel. And why? Well, because they had broken his good law. And the moral heart of that law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. We heard them earlier. In our prayers. And listen, can any one of us 
watching today honestly say that we've never lied? Never had an adulterous thought? That we've always honored our parents? That we've always only worshipped God and never made an idol out of anything else? When it comes to having obeyed God's law, we've got to be honest, not, none of us have even a hope of a leg to stand on. And if that's true, can you see that in the face of God's good and right and powerful and coming judgment, you and I have a really serious problem. Habakkuk himself wasn't perfect either. And so maybe it's no surprise that, that even though Habakkuk does say to God, you bring it on, bring, bring your judgment on, even though he wants God to act in justice on the wickedness around him, no surprise that he, he tempers his prayer a little bit. No surprise that he's a bit apprehensive about God's judgment coming as well. Remember how he ended verse 2. In wrath, Lord remember mercy which leads us thirdly to a vision of God the savior wrath and mercy judgment and salvation or rescue we tend to think of these things as being opposites but actually, with God, they always go together. You can never have one without the other. With God, there can be no salvation without judgment. This last week, we've marked VE Day, uh, the end of the Second World War, in Europe at least. And that gives us the perfect illustration of this. See, the only way that the peoples of Europe could be liberated was by the defeat and the downfall of their enemies, the Nazi regime. Their salvation, if you like, depended on the judgment of their enemies. I've given you an example from modern history, but Habakkuk makes his point now with the great example from ancient history of God's judgment and salvation coming together. So the language, verse 8, of God moving seas and, and of chariots and of flying arrows. Verse 9, with the picture of an evil tyrant being overthrown and, and God's people being saved. Verse 13, in all of this, Habakkuk is calling to mind the story of the Exodus. That ancient time when God's people were rescued from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh was defeated. Well, there you see again, there's no mercy without wrath, no salvation without judgment. In order for God's people to be saved, their captors, their enemies, the opponents of God had to be defeated. But of course, the place, above all, that we see wrath and mercy meeting, the place where, where judgment and salvation are so clearly brought together is at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, at the cross, Jesus, God's innocent son, willingly stands under the awful 
waterfall of God's judgment. He bears the full force of God's wrath at sin. And Jesus does that to stand in our place. Christ bears the wrath so we might know God's mercy. Jesus shoulders the judgment so that we might know God's salvation. That is the glorious good news at the heart of the Christian faith. But I need to be straight with you about it. I need to be straight and say that not everyone receives salvation and mercy from God. The awful truth is some will receive wrath and judgment. What makes the difference? Well, you need to make, this is number four now, you need to make a right response to all of this, a right response to God. And we do well to look at how Habakkuk responds to God. How should we respond? Well, just as Habakkuk does. Notice three things then that Habakkuk does in the face of God's judgment. Firstly, letter A, we should tremble in fear before God. Too many of us, I reckon, have have domesticated God. But in the Bible, it's always right to fear God. Not because he's wicked or, or sinister or evil. Actually, for the very opposite reason. Because he's good, utterly good, totally holy, perfect, powerful, pure. In other words, he's all the things that that I and, and you are not. And so Habakkuk's response to God, verse 16, is not a bad one, it's a right one. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. God is good, but he's not to be messed with. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He is an awesome judge. So the question is, do you fear God? The answer is, you should. But next, we should turn in repentance to God. If you fear God, turn to him in repentance. I began by telling you about my friend who who terrified his children when he got carried away and and roared a bit loudly at them. As he did that, his children were were reduced to terrified tears. But in that moment, they didn't turn and run away from him. They turned and ran towards their dad and fell into his arms. And in the same way, our our right fear of God, it shouldn't drive us from him. When we know that we're sinful and, and God is the judge, we must run towards him. We must turn away from sin and plead for his mercy. The only one, in other words, that can save us from the judgment of God is God. Jesus, like a sponge, when he died on the cross, has absorbed the wrath of God for everyone and anyone who will turn to him in that way. That is the good news. That is the free offer God makes to you. 
Can I stress to you all that, that you won't receive God's mercy because you think you've lived a good life. Because by God's standards, none of us have. And can I stress that you won't receive God's mercy just because you went to Sunday school as a kid or, or because you donated money to the church or a charity? Can I stress that you won't receive God's mercy because of anything you've done for the church or any connection or, or former connection you have with the church? It's not that those are bad things. It's just that it's not enough. You cannot earn your place in God's family. But you can receive it as a gift. And so only a real, personal, living, breathing Trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord will do it. Look, I'm not trying to be heavy. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm certainly not trying to add further unnecessary fear or worry in what is a time of fear and worry already. But you need to know this. And you need to not be deceived. In his amazing love for you, Jesus has gone to die on the cross, to stand under the waterfall of God's judgment, to soak it up like a sponge so that you, if you will accept him, need never face the terrifying judgments of God that are described in this passage. And here's the thing. Being a Christian is not just about avoiding God's judgment. That's true, but that's only a small part of the picture. There is a whole abundant life to be gained by living with God as a child of God. See, as one who does trust God, here's the last thing that Habakkuk was enabled to do. Let us see. Wait with patience and joy in God. Uh, look at uh, the end of verse 16. He says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. And though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Savior. Those are remarkable words. In other words, it's possible for us, if we trust Christ, if we're born again, if we become Christians, if we repent and believe, choose whichever phrase you like. It's possible for us, if we belong to Jesus, to wait patiently and even endure life's sufferings with a sense of deep contentment. Knowing that our judgment has been taken by Jesus and knowing that the day of justice is coming to right any wrongs that I suffer. And so now I, I'm enabled to do those what sound like extraordinary things that, that the Bible tells me, like, like turn the other cheek. I can be wronged and not seek revenge because I know in the end God is the judge and, and he's a better judge than me anyway. 
And lastly, and this is really amazing, like Habakkuk, belonging to Jesus means that I can even have joy in times of suffering. Though food is scarce, says Habakkuk, though possessions are fleeting, though economies are insecure, though global pandemics come and go, though I lose my job, though this, that, or the other may indeed happen, yet, says Habakkuk, I can still trust God. I can even find joy in the God who has saved me. And that is the good news And the bad news, that is the message of wrath and mercy, of judgment and of salvation that our world, and if I can say that you, needs to hear today. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that Christ has gone to the cross for us. That for those who belong to him, there remains no judgment, only love and mercy from you. And the offer of a contented and joyful life, trusting you. Lord, we pray for those who already know that life, that you would grow them to know it more and to trust Jesus more deeply and to know further contentment and joy. And for any yet to know that, we pray that today might be the day when they would see their need for Jesus and turn to him in repentance, finding forgiveness and contentment and joy in his name. Amen. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at birkheadfreechurch.org.